Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. The market is down, but so are valuations for private companies looking at their strategic options. There are now bargains to be had for recent DSPACs looking to execute a post-listing roll-up strategy, according to Fiscal Note Chairman, CEO, and co-founder Tim Huang. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I catch up with Tim to talk about how his company has kept busy in the two months since closing its combination with Duddle Street Acquisition Corp. We reflect on how Fiscal Note was able to prioritize key conditions in getting the right SPAC deal, and how it is already taking advantage of being a publicly listed company. It collects data and movements on the regulatory processes in the U.S. and abroad from federal institutions all the way down to local school boards. Tim also talks about the growing demand for data in these realms and how the pandemic increased the number of touch points governments at every level have on business operations. Take a listen. So Tim, it's surely been a few extremely busy months for you since we last tacked uh, back in March, but in August, Fiscal Note completed its combination with Duddle Street, became publicly listed, closed an acquisition, and then you had to turn around and announce financial results all in less than two weeks. So have things slowed down at all for you or are they still accelerating? No, you know, it's, it's been, uh, you know, it's been a wild ride ever since we listed the company. I mean, you know, we, you know, uh, went to New York, uh, rang the bell with our executives and our customers and our investors. And then we, you know, as you said, turned, you know, right around, we announced actually an acquisition the morning that we closed. Uh, and then another acquisition, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later. And then of course, as you mentioned, did our first earnings call within, you know, the first two weeks of being listed. And so I think that a lot of that is just a reflection of two things. The first thing is we've been preparing for such a long time to be listed as a company that ultimately, you know, it was just sort of very natural for us to sort of step into that stage and, and for us to kind of um, close out our books and, and, you know, get everything in order. And the other thing, and the second thing is really just, you know, we're continuing to do what we're doing. You know, we're not really, you know, particularly changing substantial amounts of strategy. You know, we said we're going to do something, you know, we went out there and we raised a ton of capital, you know, we're deploying that capital, uh, we're growing our business, both organically and inorganically, and really trying to uh, continue down the corporate strategy that we have overall. Great. And we also had some major federal legislation passed over the summer. So just sort of in general, and I guess the broad view, what has demand been like for your software? And is it, does it pick up or slow down when elections around the, are around the corner? You know, historically, what we've seen is that, um, you know, the business has responded very well to you know, legislative changes. As you mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act in particular has been you know, on the minds of many of our customers, not only because of the fiscal policy that's being impl- implemented by Congress, but the reverberating impacts that has, you know, in multiple industries from you know, automotive to manufacturing to energy and oil and gas and the like. And so we're seeing actually right now quite substantial changes to American industry uh, being shaped by public policymakers. And to the extent that people want to follow, you know, those legislative changes or those regulatory changes, the hundreds of billions of dollars that were allocated by Congress and by the White House, you know, those things are all available on fiscal notes platforms um, and used by our customers. You know, I think that this election cycle is going to be very interesting. I think people are very uh, tuned to the uh, economic impacts of that uh, that's kind of going on in the world. And so with respect to kind of the inflation components, the uh, changes in supply chain, you know, in addition to sort of, you know, the, the broader kind of capital markets and the impacts that it has on people's 401ks and like. And so I think that as we kind of track through the both the legislative and regulatory changes, as well as the electoral changes that will happen in November, what we're definitely going to see is some level of a shift in political strategy, you know, post-November. And that's, of course, going to be you know, captured within fiscal um, kind of products for our customers to kind of continue to watch and, and, and track over time. 
And Fiscal Note has also announced big strides in expanding coverage to state and local school board meetings recently. So what kind of data are you getting from those and what are your major clients for that coverage? Yeah, you know, what we're seeing actually now is in addition to the congressional actions that are going on overall, we are seeing increasing amounts of political activity at the state and local levels. I think this is sort of a 20-year trend that we've been seeing um, you know, over the course of the last several years as state legislatures have stepped up to become much more active in multiple different categories, particularly post-COVID as municipalities have tried to assert their uh, political dominance you know, with respect to you know, many of the social issues or political issues that we've been seeing overall. And so think about sort of two top of the ticket issues, um, things like the major Supreme Court case uh, surrounding Roe v. Wade. And then of course you have major issues like paid family leave and the like, uh, which are being now determined by state and local politicians. To the extent that those battlegrounds, battle lines are effectively drawn at the state levels and local levels, the reality is that companies, um, you know, are going to have to respond, you know, to these changes. So, you know, if a city in the middle of um, Ohio you know, passes new paid family leave regulations alike, and you have factory or a huge amount of uh, office workers in that area, we do have, you know, major, major issues that uh, that companies just have to, to comply with. Same thing goes for healthcare related issues, where the policy impacts um, of, you know, employee sponsored healthcare or pharmaceutical coverage and the like, particularly in light of the Supreme Court changes at Roe v. Wade, are having substantial reverberating impacts in the ways that you know, companies have to respond to these political changes on a, on a week-to-week or month-to-month basis. And then just going off of that, what new areas is Fiscal Note planning to expand coverage next? We have focused um, all the way from the smallest cities, you know, in America and their school boards and the state, you know, pharmacy boards and the like, um, through state legislatures, through federal regulatory agencies, all the way to kind of global legislatures and the like. So on the international front, we have been making huge strides, um, I would say, in European market, uh, as well as in emerging markets like Latin America, Southeast Asia, um, so on and so forth, where increasing amounts of our customers are seeing pretty substantial policy impacts on their businesses. You know, take things like currency fluctuations or fiscal policies um, that are having material impact on uh, on earnings for many many companies uh, across the board and then you know take on top of that you know the supply chain issues where kind of changing political challenges um, are really driving labor shortages or material shortages or whatever the case may be in multiple different uh, parts of the world and so you know to the extent that we can kind of uncover those areas you know we are pushing very very heavily uh, as well the other thing i would say is that we are pushing into uh, something called alternative data and so Alternative data is fiscal information or, or financial information that covers the economic activity of a particular country or jurisdiction that isn't covered by you know, traditional equities or fixed income or commodities or, or whatever the case may be. And so um, take things like supply chain issues or um, you know, lag- uh, labor and wage inflation related data, economic activity data um, that's sourced from credit card information or from location-based information. These are all reflections of economic activity uh, around particular industries and, and countries that are the downstream impacts of legislation and regulations. And so to the extent that we can uncover new impacts of legislation and regulations, you know, those are things that we are very, very interested in. And many of our customers are very interested in as well. Totally. And I want to get into some of those topics a little bit more uh, as well. But first, I kind of wanted just to take a look back at your merger with Duddle Street for a moment and that, you know, we saw this year start out with a difficult market and it's only gotten worse in a lot of ways as you were working through your closing process. And so, you know, we've seen some other companies walk away from deals and what they will probably set out plans to go public for some time. But how do you feel about the decision to push through in this current market? 
you know, I still feel good about, you know, the transaction and the closing. I think that, as I mentioned before, we are a very, very special situation overall, right? So just as a reminder, you know, our SPAC um, and the redemptions around the SPAC were fully backstopped. You know, from a company perspective, a management perspective, we had certainty in capital. We had certainty in price. Um, we had relative certainty in, in timing, particularly in the, against the backdrop, backdrop of, you know, and the market conditions and the like came out with a fully capitalized balance sheet, um, a very flexible capital structure, liquid currency for us to continue to conduct M&A transactions. All those things combined and the certainty around being able to get to that um, has been something that's been unparalleled. And so, you know, that many other companies that have kind of gone to market have uncertainty in terms of capital proceeds, uncertainty in terms of timing, you know, uncertainty in terms of kind of capital proceeds and the like, but we had none of those con considerations. And so you know, looking at the other side, I mean, I think we, we came out with a really great outcome. Yeah, that, that gets it uh, exactly what I wanted to talk to you, just in that, you know, we've seen it be a key challenge for SPAC teams in this market to hold together committed financing as a portion of the transaction. And, and together with Duddle Street, you were able to make some changes to that portion of the deal. And just sort of, you know, how is it like kind of working with them and having to stay a little bit nimble on your feet as you're still working to close the deal? And, um, and, and you mentioned on how it's going to help your flexibility. Could you get into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, like I think I think at the end of the day, uh, number one, not to toot our own our own horn too much, but <laughs> um, our management team is is um, very very smart. Uh, you know, we work through you know any challenges that sort of present itself, and then of course we're obviously reflective uh, against the market conditions. And so, you know, obviously we have a strategy that we're pursuing as a company um, that we'd like to continue to drive at, um, whatever the case may be. We're, we're still uh, you know at the whim of the market and the like. And so, I think that you know when we kind of looked at the entire market conditions and the like, at the end of the day. The capital proceeds, the certainty, um, and then of course our capital structure, you know, really resulted in a situation where, you know, we can kind of go to market and really try and and uh, and build a great business. So to get into the individual components here, you know, we came to market with you know over you know ninety million cash in the balance sheet, fully capitalized, um, you know, to get to profitability. We have enough cash in the balance sheet to drive our M and A strategy in the short term. We have a flexible credit facility, um, an accordion facility uh, that's driven by our kind of ARR and our continued growth. And so, so long as we continue to drive growth in the future, we have the flexibility of using um, lower cost of capital, you know, up and down our capital structure to structure deals or, or, you know, use capital, you know, to the extent that we need to. The key thing here is, you know, we are continuing to kind of drive that to that level of profitability that we had promised. Um, and of course, um, as we continue to drive uh, continued growth, the M&A transactions that we're seeing, particularly in the backdrop, the backdrop of this environment, um, are increasingly becoming more and more favorable for us. Um, and so to the extent that, you know, we have the cash on the balance sheet, capital proceeds against their capital structure, those are all great things for us to kind of be heading into the, uh, into the market with. Great. And just sort of looking back on your process, do you have any advice for any companies that are contemplating SPAC deals? Because I imagine there are still a lot of companies that have, you know, maybe not, not one, not two, but maybe five or six SPACs, you know, calling them on the phone. And, and do you have any thoughts on how the SPAC structure could be improved in general? You know, I think that when we first were evaluating the option, the elements around certainty were probably the most compelling. And now I think obviously market conditions have changed. And the certainty that came with a spec isn't necessarily there anymore. And so I do think that when management teams evaluate whether or not to do a SPAC transaction, uh, it's very important to evaluate that particular situation and the structure of that situation to the extent that whatever you're optimizing for, with certainty or timing or whatever the case may be, that those are the things that the management team optimizes for. I think the other thing is, and I'll be very blunt, uh, not every company should be publicly traded. And uh, if you don't have the proper controls, um, accounting, legal, compliance functions, 
if you don't have some level of, in our particular case, we have recurring revenue, uh, you know, durable revenues, long-term kind of visibility and the like, if you don't have that level of organizational structure and the like, then I don't think the company should be public. And so I think the era of, you know, J curve up into the right um, type projections and pie in the sky projections are over. That's partially due to the condition of the capital markets and partially due just to the natural gravity of the fact that these companies should never have been publicly traded in the first place. And one way that we've seen Fiscal No already take advantage of being publicly listed is with M&A. And you just announced another acquisition with DT Global earlier this month. So what can you tell us about them and, and what they bring to the platform? You know, our M&A strategy is very, very, very simple. So we are looking for data sets that we can embed into our platforms that we can cross out to our existing customers. So it is a really uh, a product strategy uh, to try and expand the scope of our products to drive more cross-sell and upsell and ultimately more organic growth. And then more workflow software that enables us to be able to take the data that we have um, and embed it within um, the kind of organizational structures of many of our customers. And so again, we are expanding the scope of our products and services to be able to drive continued organic growth well into the future. Now, one of the things I would mention here is that obviously the market conditions have changed. And in reflection of that, you know, many of our deal structures have become more and more and more favorable. Um, valuations have come down substantially. You know, these deals have substantially more structure on them, um, you know, that effectively enables us to be able to lower our cost of capital. And, you know, candidly, there are deals, as many people would know, that are you know once in a generation. <laughs> I mean, some, many of these companies are trading, you know, uh, um, you know, in the private or public markets below book value, below cash value, and uh, to the extent that you know we see great opportunities for us to be able to you know bring them into our portfolio, drive cross sell into our existing customer base, um, you know, get in, uh, and squeeze out the organic growth that we want to see over the long term, and you know be in a position um, of strength. And we negotiate with all the different bells and whistles that I just talked about across up and down our capital structure. That's a great place for us to be. And it's a, an opportune time for us to continue to drive the growth of our business. And Fiscal Note was plenty acquisitive as a private company as well. So I'm interested to hear how the deal-making process is different now that you're public. Uh, as I mentioned before, we've been operating very much so like a, a publicly traded company well in advance of our listing. We're very, very aggressive about talking to people about the value of our, of our stock, particularly the long-term value of our stock. You know, we have incentivized employees from the very beginning of the company. Um, when we founded the company with um, equity on a continuous basis, as you continue to grow the business, none of those things have particularly changed. And from an M&A perspective, and I think it, things have gotten much, much easier. There's a lot of inbound deal flow. Um, part of that maybe is because we're publicly traded. Part of that is just because, you know, just the reality of the market right now is that, you know, M&A deals are getting done and they're getting done at extremely favorable transaction structures for buyers. And the influx of, of great companies, great teams with great products um, who have great customer relationships is unprecedented in my career. And so to the extent that, again, we can take advantage of those opportunities um, with all the bells and whistles and the flexibility and the capital that we have on our balance sheet, I think that's an incredible place for us to be and for us to be able to con continue to drive the growth of our business you know, over the next year, the next three years, the next five years into the future. And so given that you now have equity, debt, and cash that you're able to pull on for future deals, what is your philosophy for the best mix of those in making a deal? Well, I think the first thing is I subscribe to the theory that when you look at the sources and uses table at the end of the day, uh, that the spread between those costs of capital should be as high as possible, um, right? So 
Um, we should lower our cost of capital as much as possible to get a transaction done. And we should drive the highest rate of growth on IRR you know, for M&A transactions or any other investment for that matter internally, you know, whether it's a new product investment or you know, investing in new sales or marketing teams or you know, a new geography or whatever the case may be. The job of the CEO, the CFO, the management team should be to use capital appropriately, allocate capital appropriately to um, drive the highest spread between the cost of capital and the rate of return. It's a very fancy way of saying, I think, definitely have a lot of structure and flexibility uh, to be able to use you know, debt, uh, converts, equity, cash, um, whatever the case may be, to kind of drive to a deal closure and to do that with the lowest cap, uh, cost of capital possible. And then, of course, we have the flexibility to allocate capital, you know, whether it's against a, a bolt-on M&A transaction, a product investment, or a new geographic expansion capability, and really look at the IRRs of each of these investments overall. I think that as we've sort of looked at opportunities overall here, um, one of the things that's very, very interesting is just the fact that as prices have come down from an M&A perspective, valuation perspective, the IRRs, uh, the rates of return for us have also increased um, quite substantially. And so we can sort of start to look at these opportunities overall. I think the other thing is that previously, you know, maybe uh, M&A targets were less attuned or uh, willing to take structure in some of their transactions. And so now to the extent that we can use um, even things like you know deferred compensation or earnouts as uh, substantial portions of um, M&A transactions, those things kind of reduce um, substantial amounts of risk for existing fiscal and shareholders um, as we continue to drive uh, the growth of our business overall. That's really interesting. And I guess just widening out a little bit, you cover so many different slices of sort of like the uh, regulation of, of legislation uh, and, and different regulated markets. So as you're looking at your, your geographic growth and things like that, so what are you seeing in terms of the, the, the change in the, the scale of, of what you're trying to address here? And, and how have things like the, I guess, renewable energy incentives and things like that, like what, what are the things that are really driving, I guess, the increase in, in demand for uh, your services? It's really a 10, 20 year trend that we're observing here. I think COVID has certainly accelerated that. Um, you know, we're, we're now kind of two, three years past COVID. Um, and one of the things you have to realize is that during the COVID era, governments had an unprecedented level of control over the economy. They were driving to the extent that economies were entirely open or closed. Uh, um, they were, you know, in some cases, 20, 50, 70, 80% of GDP for some uh, period of time, substantially floating consumer spending or supporting individual small businesses and the like. And so I think that the only thing that I would kind of uh, compare it to is, you know, kind of a post-World War II or World War I era where, you know, governments are kind of coming out of the situation, having substantial controls over the economy and are trying to figure out you know, what direction they want to go in. So we are now in a situation where um, governments are asserting that, that authority, whether it's in US or in China or in Europe or whatever the case may be. And they're doing it to different extents. The US obviously has made a, a, a you know, put a foot in the ground around renewable energies and kind of the Inflation Reduction Act and before that, the semiconductor industry and the like. Those things, I think, have substantial impacts on every sector of the economy. You know, to the extent that, you know, we're kind of observing these trends where, whether it's a local school board or city council, all the way to Congress, governments are saying, you know what, we're going to pass more legislation. We're going to um, use the political authority that we have to shape the future of society in our, in our country. Companies are watching that and they're saying, okay, you know, I really need to pay attention to this. <laughs> Something as important as major macroeconomic changes down to industry level changes, down to people or employee related changes. You know, those things are changing very rapidly. And, you know, obviously we're sitting there and, and monitoring all these things for many of our customers. 
Yeah, and you know, something that sort of strikes me and just sort of looking at uh, a lot of the, the reasons why your service is needed, it's, there, there's so many macro headwinds out there, things that make the, the world more complicated and more uncertain. Um, and so many of those as a, as a software player, and a, you, you're kind of above the fray on some of that sort of stuff. It's not like you need to get widgets to market, but there are still things that impact you, I'm sure, in terms of from a cost of goods standpoint. And, and so just, you know, from your perch, has the chip shortage affected your ability to run things at all? Is, is inflation affecting you in, in ways that make it difficult to price this? Sort of what have been your experiences in working through some of these things yourself? You know, I would say that generally speaking, we are a technology company. And, and so we're not a hardware company or anything like that. So we're not particularly um, impacted by, you know, substantial changes, you know, in kind of semiconductor industry or the like. I mean, we are downstream, I guess, from many, many of our cloud suppliers and the like, but it's not a direct impact on our business. You know, to the extent that, you know, we've continued to monitor, you know, changes to our customer base. Um, you know, the one thing I would say is, um, and we just made this announcement, uh, I think last week, that the plurality of our customer base, you know, is between large public sector organizations like the White House or the Federal Reserve or, you know, major, major um, kind of government agencies or, you know, major kind of Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 businesses. And so you kind of think about that for a second. You say, okay, are public sector customers substantially impacted by uh, many of the economic changes today? I would argue probably not. You know, the you know, Department of Transportation is going to continue to do what the Department of Transportation does. Um, you know, Department of Homeland Security is going to continue to do what DHS does, you know, as was, you know, DOD or Department of Energy, whatever the case is. And so um, the public sector cu customer base for us is extremely durable and recurring in nature and the like. It's no secret, of course, that, you know, the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 customers to varying degrees have been impacted by the economic conditions. But, you know, we haven't seen, you know, material deteriorations in the economy, you know, um, as we've seen sort of in, in previous recessions or, or whatever the case is, right? So, you know, Coca-Cola or, you know, GM or Starbucks or whatever it is, you know, they're continuing to chug along with their businesses. And so, you know, to the extent that we continue to drive, you know, great relationships with our customers, you know, that's something that we're obviously very proud of and we'll continue to kind of invest in overall. Right. And so we mentioned M&A already, but with a few weeks as a public company behind you, has there been anything that has been surprisingly easier or perhaps more difficult as a public rather than private company? Really operationally, the business that we've had overall, you know, hasn't substantially changed from the kind of transition that we've seen, right? And so we are continuing to service our customers. We're continuing to drive value for our customers. You know, we continue to recruit and retain, you know, amazing employees globally. You know, we continue to make investments in our products, drive new marketing campaigns, um, and of course, drive uh, bolt-on M&A strategies to kind of drive, you know, mid to long-term growth for the business. And so those are all things that we have continuously done in the private markets as a private company. And this is something that I've, I told our employees when we listed the company is that take the day to celebrate um, when we list the company, but you know, starting tomorrow, uh, we're going to continue to do what we've always done, um, which is you know, build great products uh, and deliver them for customers. Um, and so none of that has changed, I think, for our business uh, you know, at, since we've listed the company. And then what do you see coming up that's most, most exciting on the technology side of this business? You know, we, uh, we have made a lot of investments uh, as a company in varying places in our technology stack. So, you know, we made investments in data ingestion, for instance, where it effectively enables us to be able to grab um, new and broader sources of information. I talked about the fact that we're now expanding into 
you know, macroeconomic information and you know, alternative financial data and the like, those are all possible because of the investments that we made in data ingestion, artificial intelligence, areas of uh, machine learning and natural language processing um, that have enabled us to grow our business. Similarly, you know, we have a, a, an emerging area of our business in, in the ESG category um, where we are providing you know, regulatory information around ESG regulations globally, in addition to providing things like um, real-time benchmarking. Now, we can actually provide at a company-by-company, industry-by-industry level how companies should be benchmarking their carbon emissions, their greenhouse gases, um, so on and so forth, against their competitors. Um, and that, again, is, is possible because of the investments that we've made in artificial intelligence and cloud-based workflow software. And then, of course, one of the interesting growth areas for us as a business is in um, our AI solutions business, where um, in the AI solutions business, um, we have actually been able to drive new product lines and growth areas, um, basically commercializing the underlying artificial intelligence capabilities that we have as a business. And so... Um, those are probably some of the fast growing areas of the company. Um, and those are all enabled by the years and years and years of um, R&D investment combined with, you know, the incredibly smart and uh, talented executives, engineers, product managers, data scientists that we have in our business. And so look, at the end of the day, when you look at the long term of a business, it's really just what it comes down to is, you know, the uh, ambition, the intelligence, the creativity of individuals and their ability to continuously create new products and drive growth into the future, right? Who would have thought that, you know, in 2006 or 2007 that, you know, Steve Jobs would launch the iPhone and, and create this, you know, substantial leg of growth into the future. And um, I think a lot of those opportunities really come from really pushing on innovation and, um, you know, really enabling um, new product innovations and technologies uh, for companies to be able to experiment with into the future. So obviously, you know, we're, we're very excited by the transaction closing and to the extent that, you know, we're watching continued growth for the business, uh, it's something that, you know, we are uh, extremely excited about. As we mentioned before, you know, we are seeing major investments and growth areas in, you know, international geographies and new customer segments, you know, places ESG and others where we've been making investments for years. And that is really driving, you know, the organic growth of our business um, as we continue to execute against uh, a midterm product strategy that expands the scope of our data sets and our workflow solutions particularly into these new areas of growth. And then a commercial strategy that, you know, really goes after new customer segments, uh, particularly in places like uh, the European Union or in Asia, where we are making substantial investments in sales and marketing and the like. You know, related to that, you know, we are very focused on driving sustainable growth. And we've talked about hitting a profitability target. Um, we are continued to commit, committed to continue to hit that. Um, and so to the extent that, you know, we're driving growth, doing it efficiently, um, moving towards profitability, um, that's something that we are uh, extremely focused in on. And the last thing I would mention is um, from an M&A perspective, it is an incredible time to be doing M&A. You know, the, the first thing is the setup that we have uh, from a balance sheet perspective, from a capital structure perspective, enables us to be extremely flexible about the use of our, our capital proceeds. But the second thing is that just against market conditions um, and an operational framework and a management platform that we've built over the last couple of years, the ability to be able to source great companies at attractive prices with low cost of capital and bolt them on into our operating platform to drive organic growth uh, into the future is something that we are extremely excited about. And so the combination of these two things, the organic investments plus the inorganic investments that we're making in M&A, um, those things we are very excited about and they're only going to continue to accelerate now that we are publicly traded. Um, and so that's uh, you know really the strategy that we have and we're going to continue to execute on.
Totally. You know, it, it's been great to be able to follow up with you, having, you know, being able to talk to Fiscal Note on both ends of this of this process. And I want to once again congratulate you on, on getting the deal done in a very difficult market and being able to really continue to, to execute on that business strategy as soon as you're out the gates. Uh, it's been great to see. We're, and we're so excited to see what you guys do next. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah, great to be on. Thank you.